0: Play isn't just something that, you know, you do. It's actually something that helps people in many circumstances. And so what we found is, for instance, we work a lot with folks with Alzheimer's and dementia, and our products have been proven and validated to have impact there. But it's not just the impact that it's had on the folks who are playing and interacting with our companion pet. It's actually their loved ones, their caregivers, and others. And play breaks down this barrier It's a really underutilized, you know, what I would call non-traditional intervention.
1: You're listening to A Healthier Future, where we explore big ideas for transforming and improving the future of health, showcasing the most innovative solutions and best practices today. Today, I'm speaking with Ted Fisher, co-founder and CEO of Ageless Innovation, a company that's reimagining how we positively live and age together by unleashing the power of play. While play is typically tied to youth, the reality is our need for play may actually be the key to a long and more joyful life. And to achieve that, Ted and his team created interactive companion pets that have boosted the quality of life for so many older adults. In today's episode, Ted and I discuss the importance of play and joy as we grow older and how this type of innovative thinking can help us shape the future of healthcare. I'm Mark Harrison, and together, we're building a healthier future. Ted, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to have this conversation. You are an incredibly interesting person, and I love the fact that you're making a living working with Play. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into the Play business, Ted?
0: Yeah, I've been a bit of a serial entrepreneur and was involved in a number of startups in the tech space and got this amazing opportunity to join Hasbro the world's largest toy company to lead this new innovation team, which was really to leverage their assets to figure out new areas where they may have deep impact. And we chose health and wellness as as the space, which obviously they weren't in. We kept going deeper down. So I joined Hasbro thinking could I be doing this amazing work for children and 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 somehow the path led to these insights around older adults and their need for play and joy and happiness that sort of set us on our path. So the play aspect, you know, I've figured out is despite what culturally normal or told to us play is a basic human need it's not a nice to have it's something that we strive for and want in our lives no matter what age we are and as we get older so society tells us we're getting too old for certain things and uh, we could disagree you know more so uh, what we found is that not only is play a basic human need but as you age you want more of it you work your whole life to get to a place where you can have more fun, more joy, more play. And I don't still think that you know, a lot of folks have been focused on that as much as, as we have, which is great for us.
1: It is great for everybody. Talk a little bit about this connection. I mean, how interesting that play falls under the health and wellness category. So I understand that it's fun and you describe it as a basic human need. Talk about how you see this as one of the social determinants of health, quite literally.
0: You know, there's so many aspects to it. But one is that when people are happy, they feel better. It's pretty basic. And then what I've discovered and our team has discovered, you know, through the early exploration back when we launched the Joy for All brand in 2015 and we were doing our research is play isn't just something that, you know, you do. It's actually something that helps people in many circumstances. And so what we found is, for instance, we work a lot with folks with Alzheimer's and dementia, and our products have been proven and validated to have impact there. But it's not just the impact that it's had on the folks who are playing and interacting with our companion pets. It's actually their loved ones, their caregivers, and others. And play breaks down this barrier. It's a really underutilized, you know, what I would call non-traditional intervention. So if I go back to sort of Earlier in my life, my grandmother, who was one of my closest relatives and friends, and just we had an amazing relationship, when she entered independent living and then to memory care, and we would bring our children to see her, and honestly, you get in, take kids into that environment. And, you know, there's three people in the hallway in wheelchairs who are kind of knotted off with oxygen tanks. For kids, it's like walking to the surface of Mars. It's so different from what they're used to. But as we made our way to my grandmother's room... And all of a sudden, Jenga was on the table. Everything was normalized. It was just us playing with grandma in this space that everybody understands and interacting in this game and this fun that just breaks down any of the difficult barriers. And we see it with people with agitation and aggravation. And we see it with difficult conversations as people get more repetitive in the things that they want to talk about. If you make it more playful, you could take the really what becomes mundane in some cases and even painful, and you could make it happy and joyful. And it's pretty simple.
1: Gosh, I love that. So are there any groups that are incorporating this into more conventional healthcare? You know, we run this big health system that half of our revenue is associated with keeping people well. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, should we be doing this much more systematically through home care in some of our acute care units, et cetera. So, and anybody using this, is this a space that maybe we could collaborate, Ted? for sure
0: we have two main sort of areas that we we address we have a retail channel which was obviously a natural offshoot of where we were born at Hasbro right. by the way I didn't continue that thought but we ran the brand internally at Hasbro for 3 years so then in 2018 uh, in a very friendly management spin out we spun out the Joy for All brand and started AgeLess Innovation and acquired the Joy for All so we could focus 100% on older adults we didn't want to be distracted and so what we've seen over that time is that you know as you go down in the healthcare space if you whether you're talking about community based living residential living there's a lot of examples of folks using our play and fun and joyful products as a therapeutic device like pet therapy type of thing there's a lot of folks who have incorporated into their their daily routines and how they're getting people to socialize and interact but more recently as i think CMS and others have become more receptive to these non-traditional interventions. We've been approved now through a bunch of plans as a supplemental benefit for a couple chronic conditions, loneliness and isolation, which is depression clinically, and then Alzheimer's and related dementia. So it really has become something where not only has it been validated because of the anecdotal evidence, which is the stuff that drives us every day, the the letters and testimonials and just the incredible impact that it's had on people's lives, but it's actually been validated by a bunch of dozen published research journals now and and even to the point where CMS is recognizing that. And what I love about it more than anything is the speed of the intervention in terms of the impact and the simplicity. You know, it's natural for people.
1: You know, Ted, I think there are a lot of people who are listening who are fascinated by people like you. So you serial entrepreneur, you see possibility where other people don't can you talk a little bit about how you grew up, Ted? And is this just how you were wired from the moment you were born? Were there influences in your life that it helped you be the person that you are? And I love the fact that you combine an entrepreneurial business spirit with a sense of humanism. You do it so well.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in a predominantly Italian family. So the passion is deep-rooted. Uh, you know, so I everyone's- no, Petra, you're
1: talking with your hands. You, you know, you're... <laughs>
0: I always say if I if someone took my hands away, I'm not sure I'd be able to communicate with people. So, um, yeah, it, it, I guess you've noticed that already. But passion was something that was part of everyday life. It was part of every meal. It was part of every conversation. There's an Instagram called Growing Up Italian. And somebody sent me one of the posts the other day. And it was basically a sign that said, you know, we're not yelling at each other. this is how we communicate. we're Italian, you know and it's, you know it's just
1: so <laughs> it's kind it, of <laughs> passion
0: right the The passion part of it, I think, was just I, I got this unbelievable opportunity as a young person to watch my grandfather, my father, who were in a family business. my grandfather started at forties in the textile industry. he was a guy who dropped out of Holy Cross College to support his family, became a a machine worker in a textile plant and rose to the level where he took you a know, $5,000 loan in 1947 and created something pretty special. And I got a chance to share an office with him for the first five years of my career. I got a chance to share an office with my dad. And I learned from these folks who treated every single person in the organization like family, suppliers, employees, customers, it didn't matter. It was about breaking bread. It was about the meal. It was about, you know, bringing people together. You know my grandfather used to park as far from his office as he could and walk through the factory every day at 7am in a tie and jacket. He was 120 in there and he would not have a bead of sweat on him. And he'd walk through and talk to every single person along the way to find out how their family is and know them personally. And those type of influences in your life, you can't choose it. I was lucky enough to have it. And from an early age, one of the things that's been instilled with me was with great privilege, you know, the opportunities that I've been given comes great responsibility. You know, trying to think about what good could I do? You know, I have a sign next to my desk that said, what good shall I do this day? It really is a mantra that I try to live by. And so being in a business now where we have a great business opportunity, which drives us and drives me certainly but also the double bottom line impact of being able to have the type of meaningful impact that we are on a really important and needy population. I couldn't have imagined a better scenario.
1: Ted, I I don't think you could have helped but be a people person with the way you were raised. (laughs) I mean, it probably would be absolutely impossible. Let me probe just on on a couple of things. I've very influenced by the life of John Lewis and this idea of making good trouble, and so talk a little bit about what you and your personal life or your business life have done to you know take on big thorny issues, maybe issues of equity or disparity or social injustice, and because I think some of our very best business leaders they see their companies as platforms to do good for society, in addition to, of course, making a good living for their family and for the people who work for them. So can you talk a little bit about that, Ted?
0: Sure. I've been involved and in, in service of a number of nonprofit organizations that I'm passionate about. I currently chair the board of a couple. But I would say the most impactful that I've been in, involved with is 15 or 18 years ago, I was invited to a cocktail party at a friend's house to listen to this visionary guy who talked about this program called Year Up. And Year Up is a one-year program for underserved urban young adults. It's of a forgotten population, 18 to 24 years old, where a lot of societal things have failed them, whether it be schooling or neighborhoods or culture, or whatever it might be. And it gave them this one-year program where they came in and you know, either had to have a GED or a high school diploma. They'll help you get your GED if you didn't have it. And then that one year, they give you six months of professional and education training and six months of an internship at a corporate partner. And it started in Boston. Rhode Island was the second. Now there's 30 of them around the country, but Rhode Island was the say I live in Rhode Island. At the time I owned a technology company and really tech was the focus of the professional development. And so I found myself saying, hey, whatever I could do to help. Ended up being you know one of the founding board members, and then uh, seven years later, I became the chair for about eight years uh, of the board. But more importantly, every single student that goes through the program has a mentor, and the mentors are from the corporate partners or from the local community. And the idea is just helping these young adults see that there are possibilities for them where they never, maybe, thought there was. Without question, other than the birth of my children, the single most transformative experience I've ever had as I now was in relationships with a, honestly a population that I probably would never have intersected with and right. hadn't much in my life. And that part of it, despite the amazing work of Year Up and what it did for these young adults, you now have people who are in executive positions at Salesforce and other companies who never would have found their way there potentially. The personal relationships and understanding the human elements of one, how lucky I've been my whole life, but also how much a small Part of what you do, any gesture that you do, can be taken and amplified to a point where it changes people's lives.
1: Do you wonder if it wasn't for Europe, what would happen to some of these young people? I mean, I'm sure you have to wonder that, right?
0: There's no doubt. You have situations that you can never imagine. You know, I have mentees who are at the gas station pumping up their car. The next thing they know, they're down on the ground. You know, mistaken identity, whatever it might be. There's these things never happened to me. The circumstances, it just helped broaden my perspective on humanity. Yeah. You know, what I used to say when I talked to the class is I said, listen, I walk down the street, I got my suit on, you judge me. No question. You walk down the street, you get your pants a little lower than I do, your hat a little sideways, I judge you. What Europe has taught me is that means nothing. What are we are we all willing to get below the surface level of any of those stigmas? and get to know the humanity side of the equation. And to me, it's about the greater humanity. So those type of experiences are things that it was an intersection in my life. I couldn't imagine the impact it's had. But just to give you a sense, one of my mentees, a guy named Alberto Azari, I was the best man in his wedding five years later. He's part of my family. I'm part of his family. He's got a daughter named Melody now. We, I mean, I never would have met Alberto or Azari, And right. I love him like a brother, right?
1: So that's so it's really interesting to talk about your journey, understanding your privilege. As we work on equity and health disparities at Intermountain, it's not political for us. It's clinical, it's practical, but we learn that we actually have to listen hard in order to learn. And it sounds like through year up, you've had the opportunity to listen and learn and know people. And maybe the other lesson for us is that it's really easy to like people you actually know. As you said, you know our brain is wired to judge. That's how it works. And we need to recognize that that's how it works in order to transcend some of the negative sides of it. So Ted, you and your wife, we Lisa, you've got three kids. Is that right? Yeah.
0: So I have an older son who's 28. I have a daughter who's 26 and about to be married in August. And a 22-year-old exactly. that uh, just graduated from uh, Denison University and is now launched in New York City. And all three working and, and happy and doing well.
1: That's really nice. Congratulations. We have, we're 29, 26, and 24 at our house. You get it. <laughs> so far, everyone shows signs of being civilized human beings. So that, that's, that's a really good thing. Um,
0: that is a good thing.
1: When your kids were a little younger and you were an entrepreneur, how did you actually describe to them what you did?
0: Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Because I'll tell you, as you're thinking about it, my kids loved it when I was an ICU doctor. They're like, because they totally got it. And then I started doing, like, starting right. businesses and doing leadership. And they're like, hey, Dad, <laughs> we really liked it when you were like, we could just say, and hey, my dad works in the ICU, takes care of really sick kids. So right. for somebody like you, like, how did you relate to your kids in terms of what you did professionally?
0: I'll give you two examples. And one is I was a partner in a tech company that was based in Arizona. I was traveling almost every week, three weeks out of the, the month. My kids were young. The company was doing very well. And my son was about to have his ninth birthday. And I would get on this flight on the way out there and I was gonna not be home for his birthday because we had this big, you know, customer meeting. And on the flight I'm thinking, it's half over. Like he's under my roof for nine more years. Like I've been traveling for a good part and, and listen, I always, you know, hoped that I was a good dad, that I was there for the things, I coached the teams, I did all that, but I was gone a lot. So I made the decision actually on that trip that it was time for me to exit that business in some way so I could get closer to home. I didn't want to miss the the next nine years. So whether I did a good job explaining or not, uh, the other story I'll share is that so I spent a few years after exiting that company. I became an investment banker for a few years. That was definitely not a good career for me, but I joined a local friend who was right in Providence, Single shingle. I joined the firm, expanded in what we sort of worked on and the capital raises that we did. And so, as I, three years in, figured I, I just learned I'm not a transactional guy, just not my nature. I'm a builder, grower. That's what I, you know, I learned a lot about myself and that. So, I had a family meeting one night to tell them that I was leaving Bay Capital to join you know, this ed tech company and go in as I was already an investor, and so I was going to join the company. And so, we joke about this all the time in our house. So, this was a long time ago. And my youngest daughter, so I sat everybody down. and said, listen, it's going to be a little bit of a change. I'm leaving Bay Capital and I'm joining a company called Connected to You. My youngest looked at me and she goes, what's Bay Capital? And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, apparently I hadn't done a very good job explaining what I do. Uh, so, you know, it was just sort of dad goes to work, dad does what he does. And and uh, I'm not sure that I guess, I guess, it, I guess she That's definitely really funny, did it.
1: So, um <laughs> We've had sort of two big family meetings in our family's history. The first was a kind of unfortunate one where I, I told the kids that I had bladder cancer, and it was really scary. Fortunately, I did well, but they were young, and it was really scary for for them. So we were getting ready to move to Abu Dhabi. I've been asked to be go be CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, and so we bring the kids together around the. You know, it's like we're going to have a family meeting. We're going to talk, and they didn't know what it was about. And when they when they heard that there was no cancer involved, they're like, "Oh yeah, that sounds that sounds great." I said, right. "Any questions?" My our daughter said, "Do they have horses in Abu Dhabi?" And I said, "Yes, <laughs> they, they have horses." She goes, "Okay, we're we're, we're good." So and right. how you frame the family, <laughs> and how you yeah. frame the family meeting. Ted, I'm fascinated by people who have serious hobbies and because I think probably people who have, have serious professional lives also, they go all in on their hobbies. And you, you're a marathon runner and um, I love endurance sport also. And I think you've done like eight Bostons or something like that. That's no mean feat. Ten, ten now. Yeah, Ten. Ted, ten I,
0: did, I did my 10th did my in October and, and retired from Boston.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. So talk a little bit about, um, by the way, I'm 58. I love to run. I'm a little creakier than I used to be. I'm sure, I don't know whether that's hit hit you yet, but talk a little bit about, you know, your sporting life and how it complements your home life and your business life. And for a lot of us, it's all kind of interconnected.
0: Totally. So I consider myself an absolute fitness fanatic. I love all aspects of it. I I was a triathlete for uh, decades, as I know you're a very accomplished triathlete. And I always said, when I'm old, I'll run marathons. And then I got this opportunity to run the 2,500th anniversary of the original marathon, actually in Greece from Marathon to Athens in 2010. Wow. Uh, and I ran that marathon. And then somehow I started running marathons. And now I've run about 20, but 10 of them Boston's. And you know, to me, there's a, a number of things to it. I work out every morning, seven days a week, I'm doing something early. Uh, I'm up early. And it's the start of my day. It's the reset. It's my time. Uh, I have a, a great gym in my house. That was a prerequisite of sort of buying this house is that I could dig down twelve feet so I could fit all the crap I wanted to in my <laughs> in my gym, um, and and have my ceilings high enough to do it. And so I start every day there or on the road or, or doing something, ride my bike, you know, running, whatever. And for me, it's it's just sort of grounding your day. I'm, I consider myself a pretty miserable person if I don't work out uh, in the morning. And I also know that if I save it till the end of the day, it's probably not happening because I work long days as we all do. And uh, I think we're from the same
1: tribe, Ted, except I'm not a miserable person for me. I'm a miserable person for other people if I don't, if if I don't exercise. That's what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I've never run an easy marathon. I mean, there's no such thing. Those last five or six miles are are often kind of interesting. what have you learned in those last five and six five or six miles that's relevant to the rest of your life Ted?
0: Yeah, I haven't figured out the marathon yet either despite you know twenty twenty ish attempts and it is the last five or six miles always it feels like I could run twenty miles in my sleep and then all of a sudden uh you go by heartbreak hill and and then it's not supposed to be the hardest part of the course, but somehow up here in, in your brain and everywhere else it becomes a little harder and, and so there's two things. For the last eight years, I've raised money for charity for the, in the Boston Marathon, and I've raised for a, a good friend who was the head of pediatric radiology at Rhode Island Children's Hospital Lifespan Network in Rhode Island. He was a very close friend of mine, got pancreatic cancer, died you know, a couple of years later, was an amazing human being who had changed my life in a lot of ways as a friend and also as a doctor. And those last six miles, I'm thinking about how easy I've got it compared to others who have really suffered and and, and do suffer. During COVID, I picked up a Meals on Wheels route, which was actually another blessing uh, in disguise, as I never felt isolated because I had to go out every day and at least get my 20 girlfriends, my new girlfriends that I got to you know visit with every day. Every I did it with an with my bro. daughter. 80 ish. Yeah. I like get a lot of wedding. i got my wife used to call me every once in a while. And, you know, uh, some of the ladies would say, you better keep making him happy. He's a fine man. I would say, you know, my wife's "Like This is the only reason you do this. It's the only reason you do it. I'm like, it's not the only reason, but it's a perk. You know? So during those, during those toughest miles, you know, to me, it's, it's about always remembering how fortunate and lucky we are to be doing what we're doing. And that so many have never had the opportunities. And I think as that transposes to my life, I mean, to me, the challenges of business and life and family and all those things every day. And my wife's actually from Utah. So we spend a lot of time out there. And, you know, she made a huge sacrifice 30 something years ago to come here for college and then meet a guy like me. And, then you know, I think if her parents knew that she was going to stay, they maybe not let would have sent her to Boston College. But uh, I'm very, I'm very thankful they did. But I just, you know, every day I think about could I have made that same transition and moved myself my whole life out somewhere else where I didn't have any family and those type of things. So, you know, I think as you as you just sort of put things in perspective, there's always folks and you could look at, you know, I look at friends of mine who have done really well. They, they've retired. And, you know, it's easy to kind of get wrapped up when oh, geez, I wish I could do that. But I tend to more think about those that are less fortunate, that have been, had the opportunities or when I suffer, I'm certainly not suffering as much as, as others. And that drives me.
1: I love what you said. I always describe the second half of the marathon in Iron Man as the dark side of the moon. You're sort of out of radio contact. <laughs> uh, almost anything can happen, and you're, you're out there on your own, buddy. And it is a great place for self discovery. It doesn't always feel good, but it's a great place for self discovery. And being intentional is a, is a good thing. And in fact, I'm going to do Kona this coming fall. We've got a really super cool children's hospital campaign that we're doing out here called Primary Promise. And, in essence, we're designing the health system for children that the nation should really have. So it's a distributed system. There's some bricks and mortar, but it's a lot about how do you keep kids well and how do they transition from pediatric issues to adult issues? How do we take care of their behavioral health? How do we help kids both prevent and be healed from childhood trauma? And it's going to be all across this eight-state region that we call home out here at Mountain. now. So I love Congrats. what you're doing. So- um, Congrats. Well, let's see if I make it (laughs) that final couple hundred yards. That's the reward for lots and lots of hard work. Actually, the hard work in and of itself is the reward. For sure. So race day is a celebration of all the training, which has actually been the, the, the whole journey. That's the fun part. So talk a little bit about what you counsel young people to do, Ted. So you've managed to be successful in the conventional sense and also successful as a human being. You've got personal relationships that are meaningful to you, both family and otherwise. You've managed to make money doing good things for other people. You're charitable. You have a whole life. But what advice do you give to young people who say, hey, I want to be like you, Ted?
0: <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, and my wife answers it better than I do, but we won't go into that. Um, you know, i I do do a lot of mentoring I I make myself available for young entrepreneurs and others in in the local area through a bunch of different organizations, uh, sort of formal and informal. And I think what's made the difference for me is, so the passion piece plays a huge role. I've found that if you're in it for the money, you can achieve it. But I witnessed that it's not nearly as gratifying, is that if you find yourself passionate about what you do, then you can kind of have it all. And I, I do encourage young people to find a passion and volunteer and serve, because in that service, you learn so much about yourself, but you also learn so much about the opportunity to do well. I mean, I, I've said to my children, when, when I get into this older adult space, which again, I, I'm not sure I could have told you that seven years ago, that this is where I would be. To me, it's been one of the more exciting and wonderful communities to be part of. Almost all the entrepreneurs in the space started their businesses because they faced a family issue that there was no solution for. It's an incredibly authentic industry, which is is really great. Like you go to these trade shows and conferences, and you know events like you hosted, uh, and you meet people that are are in it for all the right reasons. You know, for the most part, it doesn't mean they can't do well financially, or they're not going to. It just means you know, they're trying to solve a problem that their family faced that they want others not to face, right? That's a pretty uh, amazing premise. And I've said to my kids, get experience at what you love to do, and then go and use that to try and figure out how to solve the problems for this bow wave of folks that are older adults and in need of so many different things as our population is about to shift over the next 30 years to predominantly over 65 years old and the need is great there. It's a really long-winded answer. But you know, I think more than anything, what I counsel people on is find what you love. It doesn't mean that your first job or your second job is going to be like your dream job. It means get really good at certain skill sets and then figure out how to use that in, in the areas that, that you find passion and love.
1: So, Ted, what's next for you?
0: What's next for me? Well, I'm going to be father of the bride in August. I'm pr- trying to prepare for that because, um, <laughs> as I tell my friends, I'm way too young to be father of the bride. You and I are very similar ages, I'm 57, so. Uh, and for me, it's one I absolutely love what I'm doing. Uh, I feel very lucky and fortunate to be here. I think. The untapped potential of what we've discovered is great. From a business perspective, we've got some new innovations coming out that I couldn't be more excited about that are along the lines of joy and fun and play. And I'll tell you just quickly about a new product that's coming out because I think you'll find it interesting. But one of the things that we started to do here, and we have a great office in an old mill building, a lot of square footage, we were creating an ageless incubator to bring older adults in to help us innovate we were launching it in March of 2020. So you can figure out how that went. Yeah. And so um, we still have the space. If you, you know, if you need any space, we've got space on the other side of the, <laughs> the wall here. But in that, there was a 93-year-old woman named Rita And uh, For 90 years of her life, didn't need a walker. And she, everybody gets mad at her when she forgets it now. And she says, you know, I, when I get up to go to the bathroom, I just want to go to the bathroom. I, I never in my life thought about grabbing this thing. To she said, if I just had something that could help remind me or to you know, make it more fun and engaging to work with my walker. So she had this idea, maybe a little bird. And so she brought this idea to us. Rita has been in her office a number of times and she is this high, absolute pistol, holds the conversation, 93 years old. So we've been lucky enough to bring her innovation to life. We're about to launch in the second quarter of this year, a product called the Walker Squawker. Uh, which is a few different species of little birds that actually sit on the walker and will help remind you not to, you know, forget, maybe uh, help you, you know, have a more fun and engaging relationship with your walker. And so I look at the opportunity here. To one, celebrate Rita and her amazing innovation and just a great thought. And then we have the opportunity to help her bring that to life. It's pretty spectacular. So I love that aspect of my life. I hope and and want to stay as engaged. To me, it's family first. That's our mantra here. It's up on the wall. And it's all about family first in our organization. You don't have to call in or take a sick day. Go deal with what you deal with for your family and let me tell you everyone here sort of appreciates that mentality and lives that mentality. As long as we can keep it family first, as long as, and I continue to put my family first and, you know, I'm engaged in their lives and they're engaged with my wife and I, which we're lucky enough. We actually have two of our 20 somethings moving uh, back into our house because the, the engaged couple are building a house and it'll be done in August. And then my son who's been freeloading on their couch, he has now nowhere to go. So he's coming home too. So uh, we're going to have, uh, Two of our children and a fiance living under our roof for at least the next six months. So those are. You, you may know, spend a
1: lot of emotions. time down in the gym, Ted. I don't know.
0: Yeah. My daughter was saying to me this morning as as I came upstairs, she was FaceTiming with my wife. She goes, Dad, it's a little late for you to be down there. I go, Well, no, this is my time. And she goes, Well, I'm moving in next Friday. You're going to have to maybe split the time. Like, you know, so I
1: gotta, <laughs> I'm
0: either going to have to start earlier or. <laughs>
1: I really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate your contribution to society. I don't know if your folks are still alive. But one way or another, they yeah. either are very proud of you or they would be very proud of the kind of human being you've become. Just want to say thank you for your time and your leadership.
0: Uh, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I, I really uh, have enjoyed... as learning more about you and, and what you've done and your passion and your commitment and I, I did recognize the kindred spirit thing as I watched you on your bike sort of, you know, mic'd up and, uh, and talking about the journey and, it, you know, it, it's, we're both so lucky to be able to do it. An amazing organization there I know it, uh, my, my in-laws live a few miles from mckay in Ogden. I know Utah and I know the health system well so congrats on all you've done.
1: Thanks, Ted. I'm Mark Harrison, CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today as we work together to build a healthier future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, then rate and leave a review. Your feedback will help us bring you better episodes each week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.